Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at The Dig, a point-and-click third-person adventure game developed and published by LucasArts in 1995 for the Microsoft DOS and Mac OS computer platforms. We're going to talk about that experience in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 37. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide comments, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk about classic games or technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So feel free to drop me a line if you feel so inclined. I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to go over very briefly the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, where does that game sit in the overall history of video and computer gaming. And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a quantitative value to assign star values or rate games on a 100-point scale or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, even maybe 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to help categorize things, we do assign each game to one of several categories. At the top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is an incredible experience, a certifiable classic, and you absolutely owe it to yourself to play those titles today. Beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend that you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game in question or you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. Absolutely play those games. You will most likely have a good time. Uh, these are not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I still recommend that you play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we get into our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of, I can't really recommend these games to the broader population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, so feel free to go off and play it if you want, but I cannot recommend these titles to the general population. They have either aged just a bit more poorly, or they may have had a couple of issues that were prevalent even back when it was launched that still rear their ugly heads today. And beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is The Dig.
The Dig is a point-and-click third-person adventure game developed and published by LucasArts in 1995 for the Microsoft DOS and Mac OS computer platforms. Before we can talk about The Dig, though, we have to discuss Steven Spielberg, because surprisingly, Spielberg is one of the main reasons The Dig was even created. Today, Steven Spielberg is known as perhaps one of the greatest movie directors of all time, having attained several Academy Awards, Directors Guild of America Awards, and an American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award, just to name a few of the countless accolades that he's received throughout his career. But, as is usually the case, the beginning of the story starts from much more humble origins. Spielberg's directorial career began in 1969, when he was selected by Rod Serling to direct one segment of the pilot in a new television anthology series called Night Gallery. Serling had been the creator of Twilight Zone, a television series that started airing in 1959 and was focused on telling encapsulated 30-minute stories, most of which included elements of science fiction and some sort of twist ending. Night Gallery would be similar to Twilight Zone in terms of its format, but would instead focus more on horror and suspense types of stories. With Spielberg at the helm, you might expect greatness. And in this case, you'd actually be wrong, because his early work was not nearly as well-received as what his later work would be. Though he did impress some members of the cast with his directorial intuition, he ended up taking a break from studio work after that initial project, simply because he received such poor initial feedback. But he would continue to work in Hollywood, writing and directing a number of television episodes for well-established TV series, and while he was able to maintain gainful employment, his true hope was to work on movies, not television series. Eventually, he would get the opportunity he had been waiting for, as he directed the feature film The Sugarland Express in 1974. While critics praised his talents as a director, the film itself wasn't all that successful commercially. Still, Spielberg had finally broken into cinema, and he firmly believed that the future was going to be bright. 1974 was significant for another reason as well, because it was in 1974 that Spielberg discovered video games, and he became an avid gamer in his spare time. More on that in a little bit, so just keep that in mind, that he has been an avid gamer for years and years and years. While Spielberg did have critical success with the Sugarland Express, his true breakthrough would come in 1975, when he was given the opportunity to direct Jaws, the thriller about a killer shark terrorizing the waters of a beachfront town. With Jaws, only his second feature film, Spielberg would attain rock star status, as he not only created a film that critics enjoyed, he also created what the Guinness Book of World Records has classified as the very first summer blockbuster film, with Jaws being the first movie to gross over $100 million at the box office. From that point on, Spielberg's career took off like a rocket ship, as he was tapped to work on a number of other major films, including the Indiana Jones series, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., and, in a callback to his directorial debut, a segment in the 1983 Twilight Zone film, which was a feature-length movie based on Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone series that we discussed previously. As you might imagine... Spielberg was quickly becoming an incredibly popular and bankable figure in Hollywood, and tons of producers and executives were looking for ways to work with him. One of those groups, NBC, came to Spielberg in 1985 with an interesting proposition. 
they wanted him to helm a brand new anthology series for the network entitled Amazing Stories. Amazing Stories, similar to Twilight Zone, would consist of a number of episodes throughout a season, with each one being a self-contained story. Spielberg agreed to the deal, and Amazing Stories began airing on NBC shortly thereafter. Over two seasons and 45 episodes, the show would deliver a variety of different stories spanning multiple genres, including science fiction, holiday-themed tales, and thrillers, just to name a few. While Spielberg wasn't involved in the creation of every single episode, many of them were based on story ideas that Spielberg himself had come up with. But that's not to say that every idea Spielberg had would come to fruition. Some of his ideas were just a bit too big for television at the time, with certain ideas likely requiring more funding to pull off than the $1 million budget that was afforded to each episode of the show. One of those ideas was a science fiction tale, set in the future, where human space explorers stumble upon a once-inhabited alien planet. As the explorers learn more about the planet, they uncover various alien artifacts, and along the way, they begin to piece together what happened to the once-thriving alien species that had called that planet their home. Sounds pretty interesting, right? Well, Spielberg thought so too, but unfortunately, to bring his vision to life, he needed something more expansive than what Amazing Stories could cover. So, he decided to take his idea and develop a feature film around the concept. As Spielberg began to work on the movie, he began to realize that his idea might just be too big for cinema as well. To make the kind of film he wanted, and to make it as riveting and visually dynamic as he envisioned, would actually be prohibitively expensive to make, even as a film, at least given cinema and visual effects technology of the time. So, he decided to shelve the idea, always hoping he'd be able to return to the concept at some point in the future. Fast-forwarding to 1989, Steven Spielberg and longtime collaborator George Lucas were hard at work on the filming of the third Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. At the same time, Lucasfilm Games, George Lucas's interactive entertainment company, and the precursor to LucasArts, was looking for their next adventure game to work on, having recently released Maniac Mansion and Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders in 1987 and 1988, respectively. With a big Indiana Jones film on the horizon, it seemed only appropriate that Lucasfilm Games should work on a new title in the overarching Lucasfilm Cinematic Universe, so the decision was made to develop Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the graphic adventure, concurrently with the Indiana Jones film. With Lucasfilm Games, there were several individuals who were the de facto adventure game team, people like Ron Gilbert. Dave Grossman, Sean Clark, Noah Falstein, Brian Moriarty, David Fox, Tim Schafer, Hal Barwood. That's not to say that everyone worked on every game, but just look at that list of talented designers. They were on this team, and they were, for all intents and purposes, the team responsible for most, if not all, of Lucasfilm's and later LucasArts' adventure titles. When work began on the adventure game version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lucasfilm Games decided to assign Ron Gilbert, Noah Falstein, and David Fox as the core designers responsible to bring the game to market. The three worked with the rest of the team, as well as Steven Spielberg and George Lucas themselves, to create a title that would hold true to the indie formula while at the same time providing players with a meaningful interactive adventure experience. 
The team did, in fact, expand on certain scenes beyond what the film would depict, and interestingly, those new scenes were actually developed jointly with Spielberg and Lucas themselves. Recall that Steven Spielberg had been an avid gamer since 1974. This was a chance for him to get involved in the hobby he enjoyed, working on a project he was passionate about. The end result was an undeniable success, with many publications awarding the title stellar reviews en route to being added to many gamers' best games of all time list. One of the gamers who were impressed with what the team was able to accomplish was Steven Spielberg. In fact, he was so impressed that he saw an opportunity. He thought, just maybe, that the sci-fi lost alien civilization idea he had originally pitched as an Amazing Stories episode might make more sense as a computer adventure game. So, Spielberg, along with George Lucas, Ron Gilbert, and Noah Falstein, met in 1989 to discuss turning this idea into an interactive experience. The team collectively agreed that this sounded like an amazing opportunity, and with that, development on what would eventually become The Dig began. Now, we need to take a step back real quick to discuss the LucasArts adventure game development process. In short, it was pretty much a well-oiled machine. Even early on, the team was pretty much dedicated to releasing at least one new adventure title each year. And one of the reasons that the team was able to maintain that pace was because back in 1987, Ron Gilbert had created the Scum Engine, which stood for the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. As you might guess... The Scum Engine was, in fact, created for Maniac Mansion as a way for the team's adventure games to utilize a consistent format and structure while making it easier to port titles from one computer platform to another. The thought being that if the engine was made to work on various platforms, the actual underlying game design could be ported without issue. As long as it worked in the engine, it would work on any supported computer or video game platform. Another key benefit of the Scum Engine was the fact that it allowed game designers to focus on designing their games rather than having to worry about reinventing the wheel every time they sat down to create a new adventure title. If you played a LucasArts adventure title after 1987, you almost certainly experienced the Scum Engine at work. Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, Full Throttle, Sam and Max Hit the Road, all of those and more were Scum Engine-based games. Interestingly, The Dig would begin development using a brand new engine called the Story Droid Engine, as opposed to the fairly well-established Scum Engine, primarily due to the fact that there were certain innovations that the game had intended to include that the Scum Engine of the time just couldn't support. Regardless of that technology shift, though, the team began working on the title, with Noah Falstein assigned to lead the project. At the time, it was assumed that The Dig would follow a similar development timeline as most Lucas adventure games of the time, which meant the general expectation was that the game would release in around a year. With that expectation in place, Falstein and the team set out to design the framework for the overall experience, with a plotline that pretty much followed Spielberg's original pitch. A group of space explorers in the distant future discover an abandoned alien world, assuming that the previous inhabitants of the planet had died following some cataclysmic event. As they explore more, however, they realize that the true fate of the alien species that once lived on the planet was something much different than they originally assumed. This exploration would take place across four distinct alien cities and would, unlike any other Lucas adventure, include role-playing game elements where the player was responsible for not only exploring ruins and solving puzzles, but would also be responsible for maintaining the crew's overall health, including survival mechanics like hunger and thirst. 
work on this particular version of the title got as far as detailed design, which is to say the overall framework of the game was mostly known before issues cropped up that forced work on the title to stop in the early 90s, with Noah Falstein leaving the project to work on Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Around a year after work on The Dig ended, the project would be reinvigorated, with Brian Moriarty, who had previously worked on the Lucasfilm adventure Loom, now acting as the project lead. Upon taking over as lead, Moriarty decided to pretty much start over, throwing out nearly all of the work that had been accomplished to date, other than the general concept from Spielberg. Moriarty's version of the title would be dramatically different than Faustine's, primarily due to the sheer amount of blood and gore that was being added to the title. Yes, that's right, a LucasArts adventure game with blood and gore. It sounds kind of like a fever dream, but this was something the team was actually working on, and it wasn't just being done on a lark by a rebellious game designer. The direction to include such violent elements came directly from Spielberg himself, who even went so far as to suggest that blood should splatter on the camera as the player was solving one of the game's puzzles involving cutting an eye out of a sea creature. Other gore-driven features included a teammate who would die, or literally melt, from being exposed to alien acid in one of the caves in the game, as well as a vicious attack by bats at one point in the game. As you might imagine, Spielberg was going for a much more adult version of the title, and in comparison to LucasArts' other adventure titles, this was quite the deviation. The closest that we likely have is the hamster-in-a-microwave interaction from the original Maniac Mansion, which was still played more for comedy as opposed to a serious adult-oriented experience. With The Dig, LucasArts was definitely shifting from the formula that they had been known for. There were other innovative ideas, by the way, that Moriarty wanted to add to the game, and the one I found the most interesting was the way in which players would utilize and store large, usable items. For those who may not know, Adventure games are rather notorious for presenting situations that don't in all instances make sense when viewed from a real-world perspective. Oftentimes, puzzles are presented using logic that no person in their right mind would ever use in reality, such as trying to impersonate someone else by using cat hair to fashion a mustache. Bonus points for anyone who gets that reference, by the way. Anyway, Sometimes, these adventure game puzzles would involve using objects that a normal human being would never attempt to store in their pockets. Think about things like shovels, long poles, metal detectors, ladders. Typically speaking, in real life, you'd simply carry those around when you need them, not try to shove them down your pants. But adventure game logic would dictate that a character's Mary Poppins-esque magical pockets could contain those and any number of other items without issue. Moriarty, for what it's worth, recognized this was squarely illogical, especially for a more mature, adult-oriented title, so he came up with a concept whereby larger items that couldn't reasonably be stored on a person were captured instead as ideas. So, rather than carry an object along with you, when you'd need to use an item, you would utilize the idea, which would then allow a character to automatically retrieve that larger item when needed and use it to solve a given puzzle. From my perspective, This is an outstanding idea, and one that serves to remove some of the more ridiculous situations that can pervade adventure game logic. Unfortunately, despite working on the title for almost two years, the game would be cancelled again, and all of that work, including the innovative way Moriarty was intending to handle large item usage, was shelved. Now, some of you may be starting to sense a pattern forming. The dig was not your typical smooth LucasArts development experience. Over the next couple of years, 
Various efforts were made to revisit the title, with notable attempts by Dave Grossman and Hal Barwood to take over the project and lead it to closure. None, however, were successful. Finally, in 1993, Sean Clark, who at this point had worked on nearly every major LucasArts adventure since 1989, was selected to try his hand at bringing the dig to the finish line. And finally, under Clark's leadership, that's exactly what would happen. Now, that's not to say that everything was smooth sailing, though. Clark inherited the work that Moriarty and his team had performed on the title, which included much more violent themes than LucasArts had become known for. While that direction originally came from Steven Spielberg himself, the star director had a change of heart, and instead asked the new team to tone down the violence dramatically. This was driven primarily by the recent release of Jurassic Park, which was Spielberg's summer blockbuster that would prove to be THE movie of 1993. While countless moviegoers loved the film, there were some people, parents specifically, who felt like they were tricked into believing the film would be suitable for young children and were therefore upset when they found the movie to contain no small amount of blood, death, and frightening tension-filled scenes. Now, to his credit, the film was rated PG-13, which means it was intended to be a film for teenagers and adults, with parents being ultimately responsible as to whether they should expose their younger children to the content of the film. Regardless, Spielberg took the feedback to heart and decided that the newest iteration of The Dig would be a decidedly less bloody experience. With that new direction in place, Sean Clark and the team set out to work on completing The Dig, hopefully for real this time. Many of the violent elements of the game were tuned down, though there were still some violent situations, albeit not depicted explicitly on screen. As for the rest of the title, and the technology behind the game, there was a surprising amount of benefit that resulted from such a prolonged development cycle. Recall that development on the game originally began all the way back in 1989. In the intervening years between then and the mid-90s, there were a number of technological innovations that were introduced to the market, with one of the big ones being the proliferation of CD-ROM technology, which was in the process of replacing floppy disks as the storage standard used across the industry. For the dig, the team decided to use the CD-ROM to not only allow for a fully voiced adventure with actual Hollywood actors, most prominently Robert Patrick of Terminator 2 fame, but also to use a fully orchestrated real instrument soundtrack composed by Michael Land. Now, Michael Land is pretty much a legend as it relates to LucasArts adventures, as he was responsible for many of the company's most well-known soundtracks, including being the guy who composed the theme to The Secret of Monkey Island, which is probably one of the best game themes of all time. For The Dig, Land would have the opportunity to both compose his own music while including various sampled themes from classical composer Richard Wagner to create a soundtrack that was designed to elicit a sense of wonder and astonishment as players would experience the game. For most of the game, the soundtrack was intended to act as background and almost ambient noise, eventually swelling and crescendoing when cutscenes or certain pivotal plot moments occurred. The soundtrack was so well done that it became the first LucasArts title to receive an actual standalone release on CD. I remember literally walking into my local Sam Goody store and actually purchasing the Dig soundtrack. This just wasn't a thing for games around this time, and it really made it feel like this was a big deal cinematic production. Similar to other LucasArts adventures, the Dig would use the iMuse sound system, which had previously been created by Michael Land in order to play the various musical pieces for the game. The iMuse system is something incredibly interesting in its own right, so let's talk about it for just a minute. 
In the early days of computer and video games, a game soundtrack would essentially consist of a number of individual tracks that would play when a player entered a given scene. The track would continue to play, often in a loop, until the scene changed, which would then result in the current track being stopped and different music to begin playing, as defined by whatever the new scene is that you'd now be viewing. When Michael Land was creating the music for The Secret of Monkey Island, he noticed the sometimes jarring musical transitions that would occur as a player would move from one scene to another, and he decided to fix that problem. He wondered, what if you could design music in such a way that it was dynamic? Rather than creating a number of different isolated tracks that repeat, what if you design music in such a way that various instruments, melodies, harmonies, and other musical elements could be stopped or started or combined in different ways based directly on what was happening on the screen, not just as a binary stop track, start track kind of thing? With that concept in place, Land would create iMuse, which was a way of effectively creating a personalized, never-ending soundtrack for a game driven entirely by the actions that the player would take. Rather than have tracks change when different actions occurred, the music would simply morph into music that matched the scene. As an example, assume you enter a room and begin looking around with a certain piece of music playing in the background. At some point while you're exploring the room, the lights go out, which then makes the music turn from cheery into a more foreboding kind of theme. This all happens in real time, with a natural musical shift from one theme to the other, similar to what you would hear in a fully scored movie soundtrack. iMuse was undoubtedly an innovation that was used to great effect in the dig. It also hadn't been invented yet when the dig began development, so perhaps this is another way that the prolonged development cycle actually benefited the end product. Beyond music, using CD-ROM technology would allow for several computer-rendered and animated cutscenes to be included with the game. These scenes had been created for the game by Industrial Lights and Magic, which was George Lucas's special effects company and pretty much the leader in cinematic special effects even today. Integrating those cutscenes into the final product was the job of the Insane Engine, a technology originally developed for Star Wars Rebel Assault. Insane, which stands for Interactive Streaming Animation Engine, was responsible for playing any of the pre-created cutscenes within the broader game engine, which by this point had once again shifted back to the Scum Engine, as various advancements had been made to that technology that made the use of a new engine completely unnecessary. So, by the time the dig approached its release date, after over five years of development, it was once again a Scum Engine game, albeit with the benefit of all of the various engine improvements that had been made for the various titles released between 1989 and the mid-90s. And with that, finally, in November of 1995, the Dig was released on both the Microsoft DOS and Macintosh computer platforms. Critical response was a bit mixed, and certainly not as overtly positive in comparison to many of LucasArts' adventure titles. Many complained that the graphics were dated in comparison to the prevailing graphical styles of the time, namely 3D rendered visuals, and several felt that the voice acting and writing were subpar, with difficult puzzles that better belonged in a Myst-like game as opposed to a LucasArts adventure. Despite the unevenness of the critical response, the game still sold very well, with over 300,000 units sold by 1998, representing the highest selling LucasArts adventure of the time though supposedly still not performing quite as well as LucasArts leadership would have liked. Those five-plus years of development made the budget skyrocket. Some individuals have speculated that the reason the game sold so well, even though many critics felt the game was subpar compared to other LucasArts games, was because of Steven Spielberg's involvement with the project. 
While it's impossible to know for sure, it doesn't diminish the fact that the game, regardless of Spielberg's involvement, was a successful release for the company, and it even spawned a novelization and audiobook telling of the narrative. While I never read the book, it really wasn't well-received, with many complaining its story was too constrained by its computer game roots. Several retrospectives on the title in later years would be both kinder and harsher to the title, depending on who you ask. The website Adventure Gamers honored the dig with inclusion on its Best Adventure Games of All Time list, while PC Gamer indicated that they believed their original review was perhaps a bit too easy on the game, given some of the title's inconsistencies and difficult puzzles. We'll talk about what I think about the game in just a little bit, but suffice it to say, whether you loved the game or not, The Dig represents an interesting piece of gaming history. As one of the few gaming titles that had direct involvement by Hollywood royalty, it represents the culmination of a story that was simply too big to put to film, and despite a tumultuous development cycle, it did in fact deliver on its promise of an intriguing sci-fi adventure. With many of LucasArts' other adventures getting the remaster treatment in recent years, I wonder if we'll ever see The Dig get any attention. It certainly isn't the most well-regarded of the LucasArts adventure game catalog, and it is of a decidedly different tone than other games made by the developer. But the fact that the dig exists at all is a testament to the work of all involved, even those who worked on the game's early iterations, who, by the way, are honored in the game's credits under the Ghosts of Dig's Past headline. I can understand why the dig is a bit divisive in the adventure game community, but I truly believe everyone should form their own opinion on the title. It may not be mentioned in the same breath as Day of the Tentacle or Grim Fandango, but that doesn't mean it should be treated as any less of a worthwhile adventure experience. We are now going to start talking about what it feels like to play The Dig today versus when it was released back in 1995. So just as a refresher, The Dig was a third-person point-and-click adventure game released back in 1995 by LucasArts. So let's talk about what it means to be a third-person point-and-click adventure game. Third-person point-and-click adventure games, unlike first-person adventure games means you actually see your character on the screen and the way adventure games typically work at least this style of adventure games you see your character on the screen and you are able to navigate around various scenes using your mouse to click on different objects or click on the screen at different points which will then move your character to different areas of the screen oftentimes you have some sort of point and click interface like icons which might represent certain actions some games particularly the early scum engine games utilized an actual verb list that would appear on the screen so things like talk take uh, turn on those kinds of things you would actually select the verb icon or the verb list 
text uh, from the actual screen and then click on the object that you wanted to perform that action on. Later Scum games, The Dig included, had a more traditional graphical kind of interface where rather than having to click on a verb and then click on an object, it was much more intuitive and The Dig in particular had a much more streamlined interface, which we will talk about in just a little bit. But the typical third-person graphical adventure game, you would have these different elements. You would click on the screen. You'd be responsible for managing your inventory. A lot of times these games would have various puzzles. In fact, almost every adventure game had some degree of puzzles. Some of those would involve inventory manipulation or at a minimum picking up a bunch of objects from the game world that you would then be able to figure out and use those objects on different objects that are in the game world itself to solve the various puzzles. So you might have to pick up a key as an example that would allow you access to a door that you would otherwise be locked, or you might have to combine a couple of items in your inventory to create a brand new item that could then be used in the game world to solve some puzzle. So adventure games have always been very big on the puzzle aspect. The other thing, or one of the other things that adventure games have always been very big on is the narrative. Almost always, adventure games are focused on telling a cohesive, expansive narrative and story. That's one of the reasons why I absolutely love adventure games. I have always enjoyed adventure games, and they're kind of one of my favorite genre in all of gaming because I love the stories, I love the puzzles, I love the interacting with the game world and experiencing those different elements of the game. So I have always enjoyed adventure games. Beyond the narrative and the inventory and just the overall interface, a lot of times you will have to interact with other characters in the game world. And most of the time when you have interactions with those characters, it's primarily to try to gain additional information about whatever it is that you're trying to do. So a lot of these games will have various question interfaces or various dialogue interfaces that you would be able to conduct interviews, so to speak, with these different characters. So you would basically, the way that you would play an adventure game, typically speaking, is you want to click on everything, you want to explore everywhere, you want to talk to everyone. When you're talking to somebody, typically you'll be presented with a list of potential topics. Sometimes those topics mean something to the person you're talking to. Other times they do not. And most of the time, the characters will respond accordingly. A lot of adventure games have kind of a catch-all for things that don't pertain to a given conversation. So you might be talking to somebody and you might ask about something that the character has absolutely no idea about. So they might say, I don't know, or I have no idea about that, or I can't help you with that. And then you might go through and you click, click a couple of other topics and you might get some information and then you find another topic that doesn't necessarily pertain to that character and then they'll respond the same exact way. Like, well, I don't know about that or I can't help you with that. So a lot of times these adventure games have a generic response if the character doesn't have any information while certain topics that do pertain to a particular character's storyline or the information that the game designers want you to get from that character will actually have some form of response. Now, I do want to mention a quick note. That's the general structure of point-click adventures. Moving on to The Dig, and just quickly, I did play The Dig back when it first came out, but other than certain story beats, I had pretty much forgotten every single puzzle, location, and specific character interaction. So as we talk about the dig and my perceptions of what the dig felt like to play, this was, for all intents and purposes, a semi-blind playthrough, since other than the main storyline, my brain was pretty much a clean slate. So keep that in mind. This is almost as though it's the first time I'm playing this, even though in reality it is not. 
Anyway, let's go over a brief overview of the dig. So the dig, like you might imagine, is a third-person point-and-click adventure game, and it pretty much follows the general framework for point-and-click adventures exactly. You control one character throughout the game, though you do have companions and other characters that you can interact with. And in this game, there is a fairly robust dialogue system. Rather than a bunch of text options to select from, you see pictures of various topics you can ask about, and you click on the picture to discuss that particular topic. Some topics can be clicked on multiple times to continue learning about them. You also have a general question button, and a button to say something profound, at least in the game's words. Both of these are somewhat random, in that you don't actually choose what your character says or asks about, but oftentimes it helps to advance the story. Once you've exhausted all of a particular topic's dialogue options, it'll change colors to indicate there's nothing else to talk about related to that topic. Now, similar to Broken Swords dialogue interface, if anybody has played that game, every option is represented by a graphical image or icon. And I think the dig does a good job in having specific dialogue responses for each potential question asked. There are very few instances where you ask someone about something and they say the standard old adventure game staples like, I don't know anything about that. I really appreciated that level of attention and detail. You can also, by the way, show items to different characters directly rather than inquiring about them via the dialogue system. This is the only way to discuss certain items, since not every one of them appears as a conversation topic. I don't remember if there were any specific puzzles that required you to show an item to somebody versus just having the dialogue with them, but I still believed and feel like this was a great attention to detail that you could actually show all of those objects to different characters and they would give you a specific response based on whatever item it was that you were showing them. As you play the game, you will traverse multiple screens and locations, all of which have various hotspots that you can interact with and items that you can potentially pick up and use or store in your inventory. As with many games of this type, the trick is in finding out what items in the game world are able to be interacted with, what parts of the game world are simply flavor, and what parts of the game world are items that can be picked up. And the act of creating a scene where the visuals look consistent while still making it easy for players to see what items are interactable is an art in and of itself. Many games have some difficulty here, which results in you having to move your mouse along the whole screen looking for something to interact with, which is what people mean when they call something a pixel hunt, because you're literally scanning the scene to find the pixel or pixels that you can click that will allow you to progress with the story. I will say... The dig does have some pixel hunting, and we'll talk about that and the general design of the scenes a little bit later. As far as the overall game world, it starts fairly linearly and then becomes much more open-ended once you get past what I would consider the introduction of the game. No major spoilers, but once you reach the alien world around 30 minutes in, the rest of the game is designed around a sort of hub-and-spoke model, where you keep returning to a central location as the game world opens up around you with your various discoveries. Most of the game is experienced via direct interaction with the game world, though at certain key events in the plot, or for certain scene transitions, fully animated cutscenes will play, which serve to add a cinematic flair to the overall experience. Now, one major aspect of any point-and-click adventure game is the puzzles, and The Dig has plenty of those. Some are the traditional figure-out-what-object-to-use-with-this-interactable piece of the game world, while others are more spatial, like when you have to organize a bunch of bones into an alien creature skeleton, or when you have to figure out what an ancient alien control panel does. One of the best aspects of the game, and one that ties directly into the puzzles, 
is that you are truly an outsider in an alien world, and you begin the game with no understanding of the technology, puzzles, items, or civilization that you're investigating. You may wander into a museum and see a bunch of display panels that depict some sort of scene, but you don't really know what message they're trying to convey. But, and I thought this was genius, eventually things will start to make sense, and those display panels that looked like a bunch of random drawings before will eventually begin to convey actual instructions or provide explanations for certain events. In this way, it's very similar to a mist-like game in that you're dropped into a world with no background knowledge or true understanding, and it's up to you to piece it all together. It's not nearly as difficult as mist in similar games, because the game does do a good job of providing exposition and details to help guide you forward, but this is definitely a more puzzle-centric experience than many other narrative-driven third-person point-and-click adventure titles. As you might expect, there is an inventory system, though I don't believe there were any inventory-based puzzles. Meaning, I don't recall there being a situation where you had to combine items in your inventory with each other in order to create a new item. You can definitely examine items in your inventory, and certain items allow you to view them in a much more direct visual way, like almost a zoomed-in kind of approach, which is required to solve certain puzzles. But there are no inventory combination puzzles to speak of in this game. Besides the items you pick up in the game world, you also have a communicator, a personal digital assistant kind of device. Think like an iPhone without the cell phone. This allows you to both place calls to other members of your party and have dialogue with them remotely, as well as play a version of Lunar Lander, which was originally an arcade title released by Atari in 1979. I will say that I didn't spend much time playing Lunar Lander as a minigame included in the title, but I really did enjoy that it was included, and the fact that it was space-themed just kind of fit in with the overall experience of the game. So the overall interface for the game, like we were talking about before, is very streamlined. And while the game uses the Scum engine, it doesn't use any sort of verb list to interact with the game world. Basically, you have a single default cursor that allows you to perform almost every action you can think of, and the game simply decides what to do when you click on something, based on whatever that something is. So, if you click on a door, the default action would be to open it. If you click on a person, the default action is to speak to him or her. It's a simplified, effective experience, so this doesn't even have a verb wheel or anything like that. It is basically a single-click kind of interface. Although I do want to say that the only other action, and there is one other action you can take, you can actually examine something, which reads some flavor text about whatever you clicked on. For non-interactable hotspots, this is usually the same narration as simply clicking on the hotspot without selecting the examine tool, but there are a couple of instances where using the examine action actually results in different text being given. So I'm not saying you have to go through the entire game world and both click on and examine everything there, that would be kind of crazy. But there are some differences between examining an item or object in the game world and clicking on an object or item in the game world. So as you can pretty much tell by talking about all of the different elements of the game, this is pretty much a standard point-and-click adventure, albeit with some efficiencies or with some streamlined elements that go beyond some of its other scum-based relatives. 
Before we start talking about some of the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says. Because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. It's very interesting to me how different marketing companies or how different companies would try to sell their products to consumers, especially around this time frame where you didn't have really a lot of the internet to be able to search and look up gameplay videos. There was no such thing as YouTube back then. And you may have seen games in certain magazines, but the coverage just was not as pervasive as what it is today. So back then, a lot of times, if we were in a video game store or a computer game store, we might base our purchasing decisions solely on what is on the box. Does the box look cool? Does the back of the box tell us something that sounds like it'd be a cool experience? That might drive us to actually buy a title. So for the dig, the back of the box says... In the dead of space, something is alive. And that's pretty much it, because for the initial release, or at least the release in North America, the box was designed such that the front cover opened up into a little fold and would have a lot more additional details. So the back of the box in this instance is probably not quite as interesting as the rest of the box. Regardless, for the purposes of this discussion, the European version of the dig was actually much more detailed on the actual back of the box. So just to give a little bit of a insight into what that looks like, the back of the box for the European version says, In the dead of space, something is alive. From the combined talents of LucasArts and legendary filmmaker Steven Spielberg comes an epic adventure that plunges headlong into the very core of the unknown and takes you with it. Featuring nearly 200 locations and hundreds of puzzles, Robert Patrick of T2 as the voice of Boston Lowe. Special effects contributed by Industrial Light and Magic. Dialogue contributed by award-winning sci-fi writer Orson Scott Card. Alluring Wagnerian musical score sets the epic tone. Full voice and sound, and maybe most importantly, Windows 95 compatible. And I say that last one a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but this was right around the time when Windows 95 was becoming a thing. We were moving into more of the modern, so to speak, graphical interfaces for Windows. So anyway, that's what the back of the box says. And I must say, if I would have seen that in a store, not knowing what the dig was, I probably would have gotten it. I would have thought, and I did in fact think, that the fact that Spielberg was involved in creating a video game was insane to me and I immediately thought oh well I've got to get this I mean his films are amazing his games must be even more so so that sold it that sold it for me beyond the fact that it was just probably a very good adventure game or at least I would hope it would be a good adventure game the fact that Spielberg was involved would have sealed the deal for me anyway let's talk more specifically about the aspects of the game we're going to start by talking about the graphics From my perspective, the game looked absolutely beautiful. Seriously, the graphics were outstanding. I loved every single screen, every single animation, every single cutscene. Each screen had a perfect mix of vibrant colors and subtle animations, with various effects like moving water, indigenous animals, and other environmental background visuals blending together to create scenes that are both memorable and visually striking. Character designs were all well done, and item icons, though a bit pixelated, still looked good. I also enjoyed the cutscenes, which I thought were animated well, and though they were in the same overall style as the rest of the game, were definitely elevated through the use of computer animation and rendering techniques. 
So overall, the graphics were excellent. Though I do have to mention that I thought the game could have done a better job of showing which items and hotspots in the game world were interactive. Some items were nicely contrasted with the background scenes in the game, but others blended in a bit too much, which caused some pixel hunting in various scenes that I thought could have been done a bit better. That's a relatively minor complaint in what was overall a graphically pristine adventure title. And you know, some games allow you to press a button like the tab key or something like that that will actually show all of the hotspots on a screen. I know some people might think that that's a little bit of a hand-holding kind of thing, But for certain games where you're not really trying to figure out how to interact with the environment, you're trying to figure out what the puzzles are, and the fact that you can't find a hotspot because you don't mouse over that particular pixel of the game world that will actually show you there's a hotspot, I don't think it's that big of a deal, and I think that it probably would have been a good idea to include something like that with the dick. Regardless, this wasn't a huge issue, but it is something that I experienced Still, the graphics overall, really well done. And I don't know, I remember reading that some of the reviews said the graphics were subpar. I've got to believe that that was just somebody looking for a 3D accelerated kind of thing or 3D visuals. This game, from a traditional point-and-click adventure perspective, looks absolutely gorgeous. Moving on to the sound and music. Similar to the graphics, the music was a true achievement reaching cinematic levels and serving as a perfect background to the visuals and actions on each screen. Like we had talked about, the music was never intended to take center stage in the game. It's not like you're necessarily going to remember specific tracks from the game's soundtrack. But you may want to listen to the soundtrack if you want to hear music that is contemplative, awe-inspiring, and fills you with a sense of discovery. It is one of the better background soundtracks that I've heard in recent years. It's fully orchestrated and does an amazing job of creating a desire to explore and embrace the unknown. Sound effects were similarly excellent, and honestly, the ambient sounds in the game create an auditory environment that serves to immerse you even further in the game world. There's strange animal noises, the sound of wind in the background, even your footsteps as you navigate the various scenes in the game. All are enhancements to the overall experience. I do also want to mention that the game had voice acting, and for the most part, I thought the cast did a good job, certainly better and more cinematic than many of the so-called talky games that had released in the years preceding the Diggs release. And the fact that the game had an actual Hollywood actor, Robert Patrick, who had played the T-1000 in Terminator 2, was pretty rare at the time. That said, some of the delivery was a bit strange, and it mostly was caused by the fact that some monologues can go on for longer than a single line of text that would routinely be displayed on the screen. In those instances, the sentence that the character would say might be split between two different overlaid pieces of text, and rather than have the voice come out naturally and flowing, it felt like the actors read each text overlay separately, meaning certain sentences had unnatural pauses. Sorry, I had to do that. Not the biggest deal in the world, but something that sometimes broke a bit of the immersion. Overall, though, the audio in the game was as excellent as the graphics. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play Boston Lowe, a trained military commander who is selected for a special mission to save the world from an asteroid that is on a collision course with Earth. Assisting you on your mission is an archaeologist named Rudger Brink and a reporter and linguistics expert named Maggie Robbins, along with a couple other ancillary characters like pilot Ken Borden and NASA technician and congresswoman Cora Miles. 
you take off in a spaceship to intercept the asteroid and use explosives to divert it from its current orbit, only to discover that the asteroid was in fact an alien spaceship programmed to transport you and your crew to a desolate alien world. You have to figure out how to get home while at the same time learning what happened to this world's inhabitants, all while trying to maintain your own humanity and sanity in the face of both danger and temptation. Now I've got to say, in an adventure game, the story is one of the most important elements of the overall experience. And for this one, it felt ripped right out of a movie. The overall tone was much more mature than many of LucasArts' adventure titles, and I thought the major plot points and story beats all made sense. I also loved the overarching mystery that pervaded the entire experience. Why was this alien world deserted? What happened to its inhabitants? How do you decipher all of the cryptic engravings, machines, and doorways? It was all just so well done. The story drew me in, and I thought the payoff at the end of the game was worth the time investment. Moving on to the playability and controls. The game controls nearly identically to many point-and-click adventure titles. You navigate the entire world using your mouse, interacting with hotspots around the world to learn more about the story and determine which items can be interacted with to cause various events to occur. Along the way, you get to solve various puzzles, which unlock additional sections of the game until eventually you complete the story and reach the closing credits. The game is still a very playable experience today, and it doesn't feel antiquated in its design at all. It's effectively as playable as any modern point-and-click title, and the world design makes you want to explore it in great detail. That said, I do have some critiques. The story was so rich and the game world so interesting that I would have wanted to learn more about the underlying world lore. The overall hotspots in each scene were relatively limited, which does serve to create a more streamlined experience as you're not simply clicking on things for the sake of flavor text. But in this instance, I kind of wanted more flavor text. Simply put, I wanted to learn more, and the relatively few hotspots in each scene limited that a bit. Now, I know that there's only so much you can do with rock formations and mountains and things like that, where there is a fair amount of that in the overall environment of the game. But there were other areas as well that I thought they could have added some additional hotspots to interact with, if only to learn more about the lore of the game. I do also want to mention that some hotspots and item interactions were a bit hidden, and there was some pixel hunting needed to find different items or hotspots to interact with. In retrospect, everything made sense, but that didn't help while I was actually playing the game. Also, just to mention something with the dialogue system, every time you restart a conversation, every single option is refreshed, meaning you can't see when a new comment is available for a given topic without clicking through them all. Now, you can advance through the conversation quickly if you hit a repeat, but it would have been nice to have topics grayed out if there was nothing new to learn, even if you've left and returned to a conversation. Before we move on, I want to specifically discuss the puzzles in the game, because from my perspective, puzzles are one of the critical aspects that make adventure games feel like adventure games. For The Dig, I really feel like most of the puzzles were great, with an appropriate amount of difficulty for the majority of the situations you find yourself dealing with. Several puzzles will result in that aha moment that I love in adventure titles. That's the moment where something clicks and you feel ultra smart because you pieced together some convoluted series of things and figured out the path forward. That being said, 
I did find that a couple puzzles suffered a bit from sequencing issues, where you do something that logically makes sense, but it doesn't work. So you figure that's not something that needs to be done. But then some other event happens, and now you can do the thing that you tried before. But because you already tried it, you don't think to retry it, which can lead to some frustration and wandering around, wondering what the game expects you to do to progress. That kind of thing, though, is relatively limited, but it does happen a couple times, so it's worth mentioning. I also want to mention that from a puzzle perspective, I think the reason that this got a little bit of a bad rap back when it was originally released is that people just weren't expecting this level of difficulty in the puzzles from a LucasArts adventure game. Most LucasArts adventures had really well-designed and somewhat challenging puzzles, but most of them were kind of silly logic-based, In The Dig, there were much more of the environmental kind of puzzles that you might see in a game like Myst. So I believe that when people got that, they didn't really know or expect to get something like that from LucasArts, and that's why some of them kind of said, ah, this doesn't really feel like a LucasArts experience, because they were expecting something closer to their prior titles. Regardless, from my perspective, I think the puzzles worked just fine. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I gotta say, I really enjoyed The Dig. I thought the graphics, the sound, the story, and puzzles integrated really well with each other and created a very cinematic experience that not many adventure games can match. As one of, if not the only, LucasArts adventure with a mostly mature, less comical story, I think they did an outstanding job. I honestly have little to complain about overall. Sure, I did have some critiques along the way, but for the most part, This was a top-flight experience from beginning to end. So, what is our verdict? Did The Dig make it into our pantheon of classic gaming? The Dig is, from my perspective, a monumental achievement, and one that further proved LucasArts is one of the best adventure game developers of all time. I enjoyed the experience immensely, and despite some frustrations... I genuinely had a ton of fun playing this title and learning about its mysteries. It does have some difficult puzzles, but nothing that I believe are crazy video game developer logic kinds of things. It is quite simply a fascinating, fulfilling adventure game experience, and I truly believe it belongs in our pantheon of classic gaming. If you have even a passing interest in the point-and-click adventure genre, you owe it to yourself to play this one. It is definitely worth your time today and is a game that I highly recommend you check out. That was our episode on The Dig. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk about classic gaming or technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you could reach out. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if anybody feels so inclined, feel free to drop me a line. I am definitely interested in having the discussion. Before we sign off for the week, I want to mention that our next episode is focused on Super Mario Kart, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, 
And if you would feel so inclined, I would love it if you could leave a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about harvesting a bunch of five-star reviews. But if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is gathering feedback and making sure that I have the information needed in order to make this the best possible podcast it can be. I am dedicated to making this as good as it possibly can be, and the only way to do that is to gather feedback from everybody to make sure that the content that I'm creating really does hit the mark for what you all want to listen to. I am just fully focused on making sure that we can create and continue to build a community, continue to grow the podcast, which we get new listeners every single day, which is awesome, but I want to continue to do that. And the only way to make sure that we're doing that is to try to make sure that there are no gaps and that we are creating the content that everybody wants to listen to. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Super Mario Kart. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>